0: Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. This is episode 1036, my interview with Jim Zimmering, and we're discussing his newest book, Partial Truths. Enjoy. G'day, Jim. Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. Great to have you here today.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me on. No,
0: it's a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for coming on. Whereabouts are you in this wild and wonderful world, Jim?
1: Currently, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia at the uh, University of Virginia. Okay.
0: Yeah. And that's where you, um, you're a lecturer there.
1: MD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well I have, I have a MD and a PhD. So I teach in the school of medicine, but also the graduate school of, of, uh, sciences. So I, I have grad students and I lecture uh, to the PhD candidates as well.
0: Okay. Cause you're a PhD in immunology.
1: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: And now you've written a couple of books here, which we'll probably jump into today. I'm sure. One which has um, just been released called Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking, and the other one which um, got my attention was What Science Is and How It Really Works. Um, how did you come to writing these from your background in immunology to writing these books? Because Partial Truth seems quite fascinating, but it doesn't seem to, in my brain anyway, at least connect directly.
1: No, I don't think it does at all. Um so I started uh, my career as an academic uh, faculty member about 20 years ago at Emory University, which is in Atlanta, Georgia, in the states. And at that time, I was assigned a course to teach. Like uh, assistant professors, often we often are assigned the non-glamorous course, uh, which was methodologies in immunology. And the first year that I taught it, you know, we went over this is how you do this type of technique. This is how you do that type of technique. But right. the students really didn't want to hear it, actually. Uh, what they were more interested in was, you know, what does it mean when a scientist says they know something? What is the basis of scientific yeah. knowledge claims? You know, How come science gets things wrong, but seems to often get things right? And uh, I realized I was not qualified to teach it to them because no one had ever taught me that information, really. Right. You, uh, we trained by, you know, kind of an apprenticeship. Not necessarily formal instruction and in how to how to do the thing. So I've been teaching that class now for 20 years, and um, over time have studied, educated myself, gone to you know used a lot of outside resources and talked to a lot of other people, and have made that now an area of my scholarly work, largely around pedagogy, you know, teaching science students what science is, but then that kind of spills over into the into you know communicating with the general public.
0: Right, yeah, and and I think I like that that how you bring it from you know students to the general public, um, and certainly I get a lot of people on my show um, that do that very well. So, um, and I think it's a great question: what is science? So I'm going to pose that to you now, and without uh, giving too much of the book away, I suppose where how do we answer that question?
1: Well, <laughs> I and mean, that's a question that uh, people far smarter than I have been wrestling with for at least 2,400 years, and they're right. not yet a clear and unequivocal answer. I think that there are some things we can say that uh, you can define science by, although not perfectly. Certainly, science is a study of natural phenomena. At least uh, in the last couple centuries, supernatural phenomena have been excluded from that that tent. And it is a, a methodology, not agreed upon by everyone, but general themes of investigating the world using methods and approaches that are known to mitigate if not eliminate sources of error and confusion that kind of plague normal human investigation of the natural world a lot of science is really unlearning what your normal intuitive instincts are it has a logic component it has um, observational methodological component statistical you know component but all of these things around Getting rid of error if we can, and yeah. finding things that work basically.
0: Uh, so, I, I guess getting rid of error helps us find the the truth, or the right and the wrong. Or is you know
1: how well, do you? Well, you know, truth with a lowercase t, perhaps. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, we never get rid of the error. I think that it's important to make a distinction between how how scientists believe. The kind of invisible causes behind what we do observe work and what we actually observe. So, people make a lot of the fact that science frequently gets things wrong, which is true if you think about the explanation science gives for things. But the mm-hmm. technologies that science gives rise to, they keep working over time, you know, even yeah. as the, the theories change. So, if you look at the explosion of technological advancements in the in the 18 and 1900s Hmm. looking back now every theory that was used to do those things to create radio waves to create internal combustion engines that you know work really well all these things all of those theories were wrong right but by our current understanding but the technology still works so you kind of have to divide the mechanistic explanations versus the utility of the knowledge that is raised when you look at it
0: Okay. Does philosophy come first before science?
1: If you ask a philosopher, for sure. Um, you know, philosophy is a component. F- f- philosophy and logic are a component of science, but it is so much more than that. Um, you know, but do you think that
0: the philosophy and, and the logic, I suppose, is what gets this, the, the interest in the science uh, and then the, the research for that to, to make it more... Factual rather than just philosophical.
1: Mm, no, actually, I don't. If you hmm. look at how theologians, you know, a lot of people say, well, science is based on data and it's based on experience. Well, religion is based on experience, right? Most of religious thinking is trying to explain experience. And yeah. if you look at the, um, the medieval theological scholars, their logic was developed to a level that most scientists today would find extreme. So logic is a necessary part of science, but it's not a sufficient condition. And you know, I, I get um, upset and sad when scientists act in a sort of um, superior or intellectually superior way because yes, science has some very special characteristics and I think that we are you know struggling with um, you know rejection of science, by the general by parts of the general public inappropriately, but lots of people think logically, lots of people are rational. You know, lots of people that are not scientists have all of these good traits. It's just that science has a constellation of properties that you don't necessarily see come to, all together in right. other fields, not in the same way.
0: Mm. So what what is the um what are the views of science that people struggle with at the moment in the world? Like what, what upsets you about how science is carried out or conducted or
1: you yeah, just sort of made I, a point. Yeah. And I apologize to you. Cause I'm, I'm kind of, I'm being, you're quite, it may sound like I'm being evasive and and I'm not, the questions you're asking are so deep and, you know, complex that to drill down in them, which we can, if you want to take the time, it takes a lot of unpacking, yeah. But the question you just asked me about, I, you know, I think that there are. First of all, there's this weird idea among some people, some scientists, some others, that scientific conclusions are proof. I, I see um, uh, yeah. bumper stickers in the states. You know, science is not an opinion, or science not you know making stuff up. Or the, they'll show a picture of Albert Einstein and the speed of light. You know, it's the law. We have scientific laws. But science is, and yet. Clearly, science gets things wrong. And well, it's so, always evolving, it's, isn't it? Well, it is, and that's right. And and there's all kinds of things as we learn, the landscape changes. But if you portray science as being the truth, you know, with a capital T, yeah. Well, why does it? Why does it get things wrong? And people feel betrayed by that, in my opinion. And then you get right. people who say, "Well, wait a minute, these guys are saying that they know everything. They're wrong. They're lying to us. I'm not going to believe science at all." Yeah. Or, yeah. Or even, okay. Yeah. It tarnishes and then, the,
0: um, yeah, the credibility. Yeah.
1: But then another problem is, and, and, and I'm let me just go to like right to the heart of the matter if we talk about vaccine you know, denialism or what are called anti-vaxxers, right? And I'll yep. even go to um, before the pandemic if we're talking hmm. about the measles vaccine, which at least in the States is a, quite a big deal. Yeah. Um, what the scientists are telling people is the case is the opposite of what people themselves experience. And that's part of the difficulty of science is you kind of have to look through experience sometimes. But if you come up to a person who doesn't have much scientific training and tell them that their common sense experience, you know, the thing that's right in front of them that they see unequivocally is wrong, but you can't explain to them the reasons why you would say that, you can imagine why it would alienate them.
0: Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, that's an interesting viewpoint because I guess that's come up in obviously recent conversations with the COVID pandemic, um, and I guess there's a lot of mistrust in science at the moment due to what's happening, and, and you've just explained it from the science and what people experience. Um, and you know, often I've heard it and experienced it myself in, in conversation where people say, Well, just read the science, <laughs> and you go, Well, that's fine, but the logical experience that you know I'm having can be not explained by that, and then if you ask for science to read most people can't actually give it to you unless you're actually a scientist which most people in in many people's lives aren't but yeah i don't know it's interesting
1: but regrettably i think that most scientists can explain to you what the the current you know what science believes to be the case right now but not necessarily the logical underpinnings of how they got there i'm not saying scientists don't know what they're doing but being able to communicate that uh, is, is somewhat more challenging, especially across vocabulary boundaries, which is one of the reasons that I wrote, you know, that first, uh, the first book, what science is and, and, uh, how it really works. But, but if I, I want to explain a little bit, if, if you don't mind, because, mm-hmm. um, one of the, one of the revelations of science is that authority is not the source of knowledge. It's, it's experience with natural phenomenon. So the, the phrase, because I said so has no place in science, not really. Yeah. So when, when you can't explain to someone why science is telling them what goes against their common sense intuitions, and you finally just get frustrated and fall back and say, well, just listen to the science, what you're doing is you're violating the whole basis of supporting with evidence, you're basically saying, because I said so. So when you talk about um, the MMR vaccine, which is the measles vaccine, which a lot of people have claimed causes autism, yeah. or increases the likelihood of autism... The people who have autistic kids, and I have tremendous respect and sympathy um, for these individuals because they are experiencing the vaccine causing autism, and let me explain what I mean by that. The, the natural history of autism as a thing is that uh, children have normal neurological development until around the age of two, and then the symptoms of autism first begin to manifest, and... Uh, either their their um, development is now delayed or they can regress. Yeah. In the States, at least, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the measles vaccine is, is almost always given around 12, to, well, around 18 months of age, 15 to 18 months of age. Right. And so what that means is that every single kid who gets autism around the age of two was a healthy, normal kid until they got the measles vaccine. And then the autism came right after. Uh-huh. Yeah. So these parents experience having a healthy child, getting a measles vaccine, and then their kid getting sick. And, wow. and that's a very powerful experience. Now, what what's happening there is that you're confounding with time. So as a, as a somewhat less serious example, I might argue to you that uh, gray hair causes heart disease, right? Because so many people who get heart disease, got their hair turned gray first before they got the heart disease. And so clearly, as a public health measure, we should all dye our hair black because that will... That'll help with the heart disease. Yeah. Right. So, but that the fact that something happens right after the other thing, indicating it may not cause it, doesn't mean it, do, it does not cause it. And so the way science would approach this is they would say, well, wait a minute. If the MMR, the measles vaccine causes autism, and by the way, thank goodness people notice it. You know, anecdotal evidence gets a bad rap. You know, everyone says anecdotal evidence, it's not data. Well, it is data it's how we notice things first, but then you have to test it further. And what they would do is say, all right, let's get a group of kids that get the measles vaccine and a group of kids that don't. Do the kids that get the measles vaccine have autism at a higher rate than the kids who don't get the vaccine?
0: Mm.
1: What about thimerosal? That's a preservative that's been um, suspicious. Does that, kids who get thimerosal containing vaccines have autism at a higher rate than other kids. What about countries that implemented the measles vaccine did the rates of autism go up after the vaccine was implemented as opposed Mm -hmm. to before? And the answer to all of those questions is an unequivocal no. So you take those data and you show it to people and you say, there there is strong evidence that there's no causal link here. And yet those parents for the sequence of events I described really experienced it. And there's nothing you can do um, Mm. to convince them otherwise. And they tell all their friends and and, and, and colleagues and they, you know, anecdotes are very powerful things. And so this is kind of the disconnect between how, yeah. when, when, I, when I talked earlier about mitigating errors, that's what I'm talking about. There are methods that we've evolved, uh, that we've developed in order to uh, kind of fill the gaps of where human observation sometimes gets things wrong.
0: Yes. Well explained. And what can you, what could you... Um, discuss about the, the COVID situation that we're going through right now, similar to the measles vaccine, I assume?
1: Well, here, I think we've entered a slightly different realm. I don't know in Australia, I'm assuming the term fake news has the same meaning there as here, right? But if, if um, you're entering a situation where it's not that you are not convinced because of the argument someone is making, hmm. but you refuse to acknowledge that they're not purposefully lying to you, yeah. Well, then no dialogue can happen, right? There, there can be no reflective debate if you assume you're being lied to. Yeah. So here, I'm afraid we've kind of, I think we've crossed the Rubicon a bit in, in the distrust uh, debate or distrust issue. Um, and until we can pull back and say, okay, why are you telling me you believe these things? Explain your reasoning. To me, we're, we're a little bit lost. Because again, the data here are, are kind of unequivocal. If you look at the people dying in the hospital of COVID, Mm. the vast majority of them are unvaccinated Mm. right and so there's two explanations for that the vaccine works or the government's lying to you and if you're predisposed to believe the latter well then there is no there is no discussion
0: yeah how do you how do you sort of look at fake news and and what's what's to be trusted and what's not because i mean my thoughts are and i think it's anywhere whether it's mainstream media or all the social media channels Wherever you go these days, um, it's, it's hard to know what is right or wrong until you do your own research. And then when you start doing your own research, how do you know you're looking in the wrong, right and wrong places too?
1: Well, I mean, technically anything that you don't experience yourself is hearsay. Right. You know, and then the things you do experience yourself, you may, you may misperceive. Mm. I think it's fair to say that um, you know, throughout history, politicians have lied to the populace, <laughs> there, there's nothing new there. No, um, but I think the idea that if someone disagrees with me, if what they're saying doesn't make sense to me, the only possible explanation is that they're lying. Then, then we've really, you know, we've really lost something huge if you're not willing to consider that you might be wrong, uh, because you know most people think they themselves are pretty rational and if you see the world and you're rational anyone who sees it otherwise is either an irrational idiot or they're purposely lying to you and then again you know if it's funny about science i make you know, science has as part of it one of its property what's called the peer review system so if i come to a conclusion in my lab i don't get to say it's true yeah. i submit it to a journal and a, a bunch of my colleagues and peers around the world read it and they say, mm, yeah, maybe yes, maybe no. We'd like you to do a few more of these experiments and come back to us and see what you find. And so I, you know, I tell people, and this is this is true, my 10 best friends in the world, my 10 best professional friends in the world are people I see a couple of times a year at meetings who come to the microphone and try to discredit me in public. And yeah. I do the same thing to them. And it's not there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's there's everything right about that. Right. So mm. This is the issue is that we, we can reason through things as, as groups much better than individuals reason on their own because it kind of controls this, this delusion that kind of all of us fall into. But if mm. there is the mistrust so that the debate can't happen, if the peer review cannot occur between science and the lay public, again, we're lost. So I don't know, I mean, how you regain the trust, mm. but we're kind of stuck in a negative energy well, in my opinion.
0: Well, if you look at your group there, you know, that you said, you know, 10 of the most um, your trusted friends and professional friends in, in that, you know, go in there and, and argue against each other or debate against each other on these topics, obviously, that's a very constructive forum. Is there any way you can bring that sort of strategy across to the general public? I mean, is, is that possible? Or is it too far gone where people just won't listen and they'll, they'll stick to their own beliefs and, and opinions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll pay you the compliment of not, you know, stating things that I'm not an expert in because I'm not a sociologist and I don't understand the yeah. group psychology. You know, I don't know. In the States, at least, we do have town hall meetings, which sometimes are just a bunch of grandstanding. But if they're done properly, then instead of filtering the audience for people who are just sycophants for the candidate in question, they'll allow people of different views in, and then they'll put the candidate on the spot. And on live television, force the candidate to explain the reasons why they hold a certain position. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hope in that, as opposed to you know two people on a stage just screaming insults at each other. But I don't know. This is this is a tough one. We have tough one. Beef, yeah, yeah. You know.
0: Well, I look at the political arena, and, and you know we've got two main parties in Australia, and, and typically you're either one or the other. And um, <laughs> generally, you know, when I and I I sort of try and stay mutual across it all, but. Um, I know I'm probably not in many ways too, but when I look at it from an outside perspective, I'm just like, well, you're clearly on that side and you're clearly going to make sure that that's the way your belief stays. You're not going to be um, ready to open up and accept what the other one's talking about, even though there might be some some more radical truth there.
1: And I think it goes a lot deeper than that from an um, identity standpoint, that if you have a social circle and changing your mind or or even openly expressing uh, another view could learn, lead to your ostracism, mm. then the pressure becomes much stronger than one of trying to, uh, of around knowledge claims, right? It becomes a, yeah. a, a sociological phenomenon, which is, which well, is. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. You could, you could kick yourself out of the tribe, but I think it also comes down to a bit of an ego thing uh, and maybe a bit of a vulnerability thing where if you start questioning your own beliefs and, and maybe change some of your beliefs, that somehow might put you in, in more danger. Um,
1: well, there's that too. You can, you can ask my wife. She'll tell you how much I love admitting I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, all of us have this. Uh, but on the other hand...
0: That's trained in you, I'm guessing, from your your, <laughs> your experience in life. You've been trained to be open. Um, and it's certainly
1: well, a, a fairly powerful characteristic. My, yeah, I was kind of making fun of myself, oh. but. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm like like any other spouse. I, you know, you, you someone accuses mm-hmm. you of doing something wrong, and you get offensive and you get your dander yeah. up, and all that stuff. But you know, the thing about science is, since I'm what I do in in, in my life is pursue knowledge, I don't want to waste my life. Mm. You know, I don't want to pursue things that I know or think are incorrect. So again, there's there's a real um, investment here, which I think a lot of people have, but if, if your incentive structure is, you know, you talk about, I think Winston Churchill once said that, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. Okay, fine. So where does that leave us? And, and basically for politicians, which drive a lot of our, our polemic rhetoric, the name of the game is staying in the game, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, it's appealing to people. And if the way you appeal to people, do you have um, Jerry Springer in Australia?
0: No. All
1: right. So Jerry Springer was a talk show host in the states years ago. Oh yeah, know the
0: name. I think yeah, I think he may have been on late night TV or something.
1: Yeah, he would get people on a stage together who he knew were going to hate each other and kind of provoke them into fighting, and uh, it, everybody thought it was very amusing. And regrettably, very sad that we would think that, I suppose. But right now, our politics has become that where people you know people might be mad for a number of reasons, and what they want most is someone to go out there and scream their anger. For them and with them, as opposed to try to fix the problem. Again, it, it's understandable. You know, I mean, in a way, it's emotionally understandable. It's not very helpful.
0: Yeah, I do. I'm just looking up Jerry Springer now. Sorry, I got distracted there. Oh,
1: sorry. <laughs> I don't know what um, the Australian equivalent would be. I suspect you must have. One. No, I think
0: yeah, I think he used to be on oh, years and years ago on daytime TV or something like that. Like, anyway, the name does ring a bell in the face. So I just saw, looks familiar. Um, partial truths. Tell us about this one, and and what what made you write partial truths? What was your
1: yeah? you thinking so, there? Yeah, thanks for asking. So you know, it kind of it sprung out of the first book because in in the first book uh, to talk about science, you have to talk about the types of cognitive errors that humans make and how science tries to address them. And in in looking at that, um, what I I got into my mind was that there was a common theme by which you could explain. Multiple types of problems humans have with thinking that could be um, understood through the lens of a fraction. I want to clarify. I'm, I'm not, you know, people have said, "Oh, this is a math book. It's, it's not a math book." And I am not saying, by the way, that humans have fractions in their brains, or that we have little calculators whirling in our heads, and that's how we think. We, we don't. Mm. But a, fr- you know, math is just a language, and a fraction is a symbolic representation of a group of things. And how many of those things have a certain property? That that's what a fraction is. Yeah. If you consider how our many of our internal cognitive errors and biases work, and how we misunderstand the world through probability and odds and frequencies, and how we're manipulated by others. And here I'm talking about not just politicians, but advertisers and uh, certain. Um, kind of new age beliefs, which I I find objectionable personally, not the people who believe in them, but the, how they're being presented. You can and, and certain con artists in the financial services industry actually these are points of vulnerability. And, and so basically, I was attempting to use a fraction as a lens to explore the nature of these problems in human thinking.
0: Right. And what did you discover?
1: <laughs> well. I convinced myself, you know, which is which is the easiest thing for uh, any group, of, any person to do. You know, I think that I, I'd like to. I can launch into some um, examples, but
0: yeah, I know you've got a, many in the book, but if you can give us some examples, that'd be awesome.
1: Yeah, so you know, one of the classic heuristics, which was described by cognitive psychologists some decades ago, is called the availability heuristic. And what happens in the availability heuristic? is, and a heuristic is just a kind of a, a rule of thumb shortcut that our brains take to solve complicated problems fairly easily. The availability heuristic assumes that the ease with which something comes into your mind represents how likely it is to occur. Right. So a classic example would be that it, you know, it is, I, I meet a lot of people who are afraid to fly. Yeah, you don't meet a lot of people who are afraid to drive but hands down driving is more dangerous than flying mm. even when you you control you know some people maybe never fly most people drive but when you when you control for the the rate of death per miles traveled yeah flying is so much more dangerous than driving and people but you know when a plane crashes it's on the news they interview the families of everyone who died there's a there's a big investigation by the government agency you'll hear follow-ups on it the movie industry makes, you know, these these horror films about planes crashing, doomed planes and all that. When yep. a car crash happens, you never, I mean, unless it's a celebrity or something really bizarre, you never hear about it. Hollywood doesn't make movies, you know, the car crash or whatever. <laughs> you know, they, and, and so even though in the States, at least, you know, 30,000 people or so a year die in car accidents and, and typically almost no one dies in commercial plane accidents, People are afraid of flying because that's what that's what's available to their mind that's what comes to their mind and um you know recently why is that
0: but more available in the mind? is it just because it's put across in that in that way in movies and in on the news and things like that than getting yeah, well, car accidents because I would have thought, I guess being that you drive every day, you sort of take it for granted that you know you're in a, a various risky situation and and I think we all do unless you're thinking sure, about
1: but, it. you know so we drive every day, but how often do you see someone die in a car wreck in front of you? Not often. Not often, I hope. I mean, I, I never have. I hope I never do. But when a plane goes down, everybody hears about it. You know, it's, it's blaring on all the media. It, it's all over the place. And so it becomes available to your mind. Same thing with um, shark attacks, right? So people yeah. who are going to swim in the ocean, they're afraid of getting eaten by a shark, but you're much more likely to drown. Yeah. Um, and these types of tendencies are used against us to manipulate us, I'll, I'll give an example. And again, I apologize that I keep talking about the states, but it's just what I'm familiar with. Yeah, that's fun. Um, is that during the 2016 presidential election, um, then candidate Trump made a, a strong point of his argument that uh, undocumented immigrants were v- particularly dangerous people. And therefore we have to close the borders. It was a very xenophobic view. And there was a woman named Katherine Steinley who was killed by an undocumented immigrant with a handgun. Yeah, And they, they kept pounding this example, see, see, see undocumented immigrants are dangerous. He said, well, wait a minute. I'm, and what they were doing is making that very available to us, right? It's, it's, it's in our minds, we can't forget it. When we think about uh, murder, we think about undocumented immigrants. But in order to actually ask the question, what you need to know, you, that's just the top of the fraction. Here's the fraction analogy, right? So our yep. fraction's numerator. How many undocumented immigrants commit murder over the total number of undocumented immigrants? Yeah, so um, once you take the denominator into account, the percentage of undocumented immigrants that commit murder is substantially lower than the people who are born citizens in the states. Actually, people born here are much more dangerous than undocumented immigrants. And the crime waves across our cities that dropped in the 80s and 90s was coincident with more you know, immigrants coming in. So it's one Hmm. of those situations where I can make you believe something uh, from a frequency basis by getting it available in your mind. It's why in Las Vegas, they put the the winning slot machines in the airport, right? Because you get off the plane and you're like, oh, yeah, people win slot machines. I should play the slot machines. Maybe I'll win. Right. And uh, and this happens kind of just in the background. It's kind of a really funny example is that um, people who tend to watch soap operas a lot overestimate, what percentage of the population are doctors or lawyers? Because, you know, that's what's in their mind. And so this is, a, this is, a, this is one analogy the fraction is basically you have, a, you have a fraction of the information, you're paying attention just to the numerator and you're ignoring the denominator without that bottom part, you can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. And that's, I mean, so let me, I, I do have an example from your country, right? So um, Scott Morrison, made uh-huh. a claim pretty recently about you know in, in the context of uh, climate change that in Australia in 2020, your total emissions are 19% lower than they were in 2005, which is true uh, on a per capita basis. Right. Yeah. So the emissions per person are lower, but the earth doesn't care. <laughs> what the earth cares about are the total emissions lower and the total emissions are higher because there's just a lot more people Yes. Right. So here, what what so, uh, <laughs> what he's done basically is kind of pull the wool over the eyes of the people to whom he's speaking. Yeah. By by perverting the fraction, you see what I'm saying by removing. Uh,
0: so yeah, total emissions per person have reduced, but total emissions in in total have increased.
1: Right. And what's making the Earth warmer is how how much total emissions there are, not doesn't care per person, no. people. Yeah. So this is the these are the types of um tactics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, once you understand the what's behind, they give you a single number, but once you understand what's behind the number, that, that there is a fraction behind the number and what that fraction is, it, it changes everything. As the pandemic was really rolling out in the States, uh, the newspapers were reporting that unemployment was dropping and the unemployment rate was dropping and the average wage was going up. Yeah. Which is weird, right? That sounds really good. You're like, wait a minute, the world's falling apart. How how could unemployment be dropping in the average wage going? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> unemployment drops if um the unemployment is calculated as the number of unemployed people on the top of the fraction over the total number of people who are looking for jobs. Mm. And it has to be that because if you counted everybody, well, then you'd be counting retired people and infants, you know, and, and it would be a, a kind of a weird number. But because of that reason, the unemployment rate drops. So how did you
0: say that was calculated again?
1: Yeah. So it's the the number of unemployed people on the top of the fraction over the total number of people who want to work. Right. So Hmm. what happens is if the job market gets so bad that a bunch of people just give up and stop looking for jobs for a while, they're kicked out of the fraction and the unemployment rate goes down because you're kicking out the people who are unemployed that aren't seeking work anymore. Um, average wage... Well, that's
0: interesting. And I assume it's the same here in Australia, in the calculation.
1: I couldn't speak to that. Uh, I, um, Sorry, yeah. Uh, maybe. No,
0: I, I would just assume. That that's yeah. A...
1: And then, you know, average wage is just an average. We know what an average is. And so um, what happened as the pandemic was rolling out was not... Only, so a bunch of people were... Uh, it was so hard to find work, a bunch of people were quitting. And the people who were quitting were largely jobs that tend to... Earn less money, so the average wage. No one was earning more money, but the average wage went up because the lower earners were were quitting.
0: Yeah,
1: and the unemployment rate dropped because people were giving up. And so, you know, again, if if you have a government metric where if the economy is doing great and the economy is collapsing, the same thing happens either way, right? And then you wonder how it is that things are being spun by different sides, and there's a lot of confusion.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating to think about.
1: It really get us into trouble
0: well you know and, and just sort of going back to an earlier point too this is the idea of trusting our leaders i suppose because i've, I've noticed a similar thing here unemployment's going down i'm just like okay well that's interesting um because I, I just don't expect i'm not experiencing it directly and then you know they're talking about wages going up and i'm just like well that's weird too because no one that i know seems to be having wage increases um and I assume it's it's, it's probably similar to, to what you've just stated there, um, but sometimes how things are portrayed in the media, even like with the COVID pandemic, some of the stats and things that the media were pushing and giving across seemed more so fear-provoking than actual beneficial to help us make better decisions.
1: So I have tremendous respect for the media and the fourth estate. It's an essential part of a democracy, but also yeah. they are businesses. And the more people that read, their papers or watch their shows, the more money they make. And you get uh readership and viewership by saying things that catch people's attention. So mm. I think what you said is inevitable uh in, in a business model like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean it's it's like that point. Um well I, I remember seeing one case and they said, you know, a young child died of of COVID and wasn't vaccinated or something like that. And I think this was around the time they started to push the idea that maybe we should get our children vaccinated. Um but I looked into it and and it was fairly clear to me and the people that we shared with that the, the child had underlying conditions. Hmm. Um, but, you know, they bring that one to the attention but not any other examples of cases where people vaccinated or unvaccinated have been affected by COVID.
1: Anytime time someone is making a probability or a population-based argument and giving you individual examples, don't listen.
0: Yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> Right, look, it's, um yeah, really insightful conversation and uh, the, the type of conversations I love, very thought-provoking, and, and they leave me sort of going away thinking about this and discussing it with my peers. Um, so I do appreciate you sharing and coming on the show. Um, and I know the audience will too. I think that's why people tune in is because it, it leaves them thinking for their day and, and gives them conversations to go into the weekend with as well. So thank you.
1: Um,
0: I appreciate you, appreciate you coming on, Jim. Yeah. Um, what is, oh, any, any, any final thoughts from you, of course, welcome. And also, how can people best uh, find out more about you, your work, and maybe even reach you if you wish to connect?
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking. Well, um, the books I have you can buy on, on Amazon or from most, most booksellers, and I have a website, jameserming.com, and there's a, there's a tab you can click on if you want to send me a, a message or be added to a mailing list. I don't uh, it's funny, I don't engage much in other social media because one of the main points of my writings is that sound bites are dangerous, and it would seem pretty disingenuous for me to start tossing out tweets about how you shouldn't listen to things that are fewer than you know a couple hundred words. <laughs> but uh, nice. yeah, the, web, the website's the best place to find me
0: Sound bites are dangerous. I like that. so that's um James All right, I'll stick the link in the show notes, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwire.com and the links for both books will be there as well. Support the show by clicking those links if you wish to purchase, that'd be great. And uh, Jim, once again, thank you. I wish you all the best with your book and uh, appreciate your time coming on the show today.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me on. You're
0: welcome. Thanks, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwire.com. Until next time, peace, passion and purpose. See you soon.